Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Erin Schnettler, and I'm a master's candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm here in the studio today with commodity broker, analyst, and author Elaine Cub. Elaine Cub is the author of the book Mastering the Grain Markets, and we're here today to talk about how major grain commodities such as corn and soybeans are currently produced, traded, and sold in the United States, and how we could think about intervening to make this system more sustainable. Elaine, thank you for joining us today. Erin, it is a pleasure to be here. Well, I'll start out by first asking you a little about your book, Mastering the Grain Markets. Uh, Why did you feel like writing this book, and who are you writing this book for? Well, um, I'd I'd been asked to by various clients and various people that I've met um, throughout my career, but really the ideal candidate for reading it, in my mind, was somebody like me, somebody starting... Or it's the book that I wish had been available when I had been starting in the industry. You know, that just gives a background of what is going on, what the future's trading, what the motivations are for that, um, who uses them, what are the farmers doing. It's kind of a 360-degree look of what everybody in the industry is doing. So it gives some picture for the futures traders of what the farmer's doing, and it gives a picture of what the futures traders are doing for the farmers to read. So it's it's sort of a, a holistic approach of the markets. So, Elaine... As someone who's very familiar with uh, futures trading in the United States and um, as someone who knows personally that our audience might not be quite as familiar with futures trading, uh, can you give us a quick basic primer on what is futures trading, especially within the context of grain production? Well, Erin, I can try. Um, Future, you know, if you're watching CNBC or you open up the newspaper and you see, you know, a lot of stock prices listed, people trade stocks in companies, right? They trade a little share in a piece of a company. You can also trade financial assets, little pieces of paper, contracts that are traded at the Chicago Board of Trade, not the New York Stock Exchange, but the Chicago Board of Trade or any other futures exchange. There are several several around the globe, but here in the United States, we'll deal with the benchmark Chicago Board of Trade. But these contracts are not shares in a company. These contracts represent, let's say, 5,000 bushels of corn or 5,000 bushels of soybean or 5,000 bushels of wheat. They're contracts that, um, like I said, represent either buying or selling this quantity of commodity at a certain point in time. And that's why they're called futures, because they represent the physical, the, the, they represent the price of that physical grain at a future point in time. So today, for instance, this is February 12th, um, we could go to the Chicago Board of Trade or through a broker, through any sort of brokerage that deals there, we could buy a March corn futures that represents the price of 5,000 bushels of physical corn in or near Chicago at a Chicago warehouse on March 15th. So that's what they represent. And the trading, the buying and selling of these contracts, therefore, establishes a benchmark price for that commodity. Some of the people that are buying and selling these contracts are either producers of the contracts that need to represent the price at a future point in time, or perhaps the end users of this grain that need to represent the price at a future point in time. For instance, an ethanol plant or a cattle feeder that needs to lock in a price that he wants to buy grain at in the future. 
So that's part, that's actually the majority of the futures trading, about 60% or more, depending on the time and the month and the year. About 60% of the corn futures market in the Chicago Board of Trade is actual producers or actual end users. The other 40% tends to be speculators or people who are trading these the same way that you or I would trade stocks in our retirement portfolio, just as a, as a speculation that if you buy it if you think the price is going to go up. You could also sell it if you think the price is going to go down. You can short sell futures easier than you can short sell stocks, but that's, that's a different concept. We won't go into that too much, but that's sort of the idea of what they are. Does that help? Yeah, it does. Um, another follow-up question to that is, uh, how does the harvest cycle of grain production impact futures markets? Are Can you uh, trade a contract in February for a, a contract for February? Exactly. Bingo. Like, and that's that's exactly the reason why they evolved. So the ne- the 2014 crop of corn and soybeans that farmers are getting prepared to plant in the next few months here in the United States. It won't be harvested until October or November of 2012, or I'm sorry, 2014. So in order to lock in a price for that, farmers are going to use the December 2014 corn futures contract, or perhaps the November 2014 soybean futures contract. So you're right, these contracts go far out in the future. You can also trade a 2015 contract and probably a 2016 contract at this point in time. But that's why they do, is because you're looking at a very seasonal market for grain that is produced annually within any given hemisphere. They only produce one corn crop here in the United States. It comes once in the year, you can bring it to market any time. You might put it in a bin on your farm and not bring it to market until March 2015. But yes, you can pick any time frame, and, and that's how um, the futures markets adapt to that. Very, very good explanation. And um, as a follow-up, so uh, there is um, the Chicago Board of Trade obviously deals in our hemisphere. There's a whole other different hemisphere. Um, how do... Uh, futures prices in the United States impact, and at the Chicago Board of Trade, impact global uh, future prices? They do very much. I mean, that's, that is the benchmark, particularly for corn, that's the, bench, the benchmark. Like I mentioned, there are other futures exchanges around the world. For instance, China, um, the Dalian Commodity Exchange, trades a lot of soybean and corn futures contracts. And those prices, through the principles of arbitrage, you know, if you're going to buy and sell um, soybeans in either this country or China, the transportation costs between the two countries should account for any difference in the price of soybeans between the Gulf of Mexico and Daly and China. Um, But how do they affect? I mean, it's very frustrating, I think, for foreign agriculture producers, let's say in South Africa or perhaps even in Argentina, certainly for Argentina, where they have to be using a bench, a global benchmark price for this grain, but meanwhile their own currency is wildly fluctuating. So for them to, to look ahead at a futures price for late 2014 or, or onward and try to predict from that what their actual receipts will be, what their actual input costs will be based on their own currency, that's a lot, that's a whole different level of volatility for them. And meanwhile, the Chicago Board of Trade is responding to their to their production concerns. You know, if South America particularly has a drought, particularly for soybeans, um, Brazil grows and exports more soybeans than the United States does. And so the soybean market in particular has sort of a six-month cadence more than an annual cadence than it used to. 
The corn market is still very much dominated by the United States, so that is still pretty much an annual seasonal pattern. But like I said, the Chicago Board of Trade prices, those benchmark prices, do respond somewhat to foreign production concerns or how foreign production has responded to prices, but not always to the degree that makes it easier for foreign agriculture producers to, to hedge their own risks. Great. Um, for those of us who are not well-versed in the idea of commodity training, especially within the context of uh, food and corn and soy, can you explain a little bit about how trading commodities such as corn and soy uh, can impact farming practices in the United States? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's primarily a risk management tool. So it futures trading and options trading originated, you know, hundreds of years ago, really, in Japan or in England. They've had futures exchanges, grain exchanges for hundreds of years. Within the United States, the Chicago Board of Trade is the big benchmark for corn and soybean futures trading. And what it allows farmers or anybody participating in the industry to do is to have a financial proxy that is, you know, a substitute financial tool that represents a certain amount of grain. And when you can trade those substitute financial assets, now you can hedge your risks. This allows farmers to lock in a price for their crops before the crops are grown or before they want to deliver them. And therefore, the farmers can therefore manage their price risk. Like I said, they can lock in or hedge a price. And how that affects production, really, is that if you know what price you're going to receive or what price you have locked in, now that can make you can make different decisions or feel more confident about spending the money to put the inputs in and to grow that crop. Without that, you face, you know, a lot more risk just financially. It's, it's already, and it still is a financially risky um, occupation. It's risky because of the weather also. You're never going to be able to lock out all of the risks of farming, but this is the way that farmers have done that. And also, I mean, obviously, a lot of investment companies and just private retail investors are able to use these futures contracts and options contracts also just to get some exposure to these markets and speculate. But they add liquidity to the markets and they, you know, take the other side of the trade for the farmers and remove that risk away from the farmers. Great. So you mentioned a little bit about how uh, farming is an inherently risky occupation and commodity trading helps manage that risk. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, the um, some of the risks that farmers face, especially within such a globalized uh, economy uh, that we have today? Well, one thing that's really tricky for any individual farmer to manage is this market risk idea. For instance, last year we had corn prices that were record high, above $7 per bushel, and that was you know, a really great situation for the American farmer. They were receiving very profitable prices for the grain that they were able to grow, even in a challenging weather environment. And since that time, prices have dropped nearly in half. They're about $4 for cash corn right now. So that's a huge risk, right? If the, if the product that you're producing, you have no idea what the price is going to be a year from now or two years from now, how can you, you know, make an investment in your operation? That's a very risky proposition. Um, so... So that's the risk that they have, and there's really nothing that they can do about it. You know, in in most 
industries. If you knew that overproduction was going to cause a major price fall, then you would cut back on your production. But because farming is just an amalgamation of hundreds or thousands of individual producers just trying to maximize their own production, it's kind of a prisoner's dilemma, right? Each individual producer will try to produce as much as they possibly can, and the entire world or the global commodity markets are therefore very susceptible to these um, booms and busts of production and therefore spikes and dips in prices very suddenly. Great. Very interesting. So um, with these... uh, the enormous uh, increase in agriculture. We're also hearing a lot about um, some of the negative environmental impacts that can be associated with agriculture. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what currently is out there in terms of on-farm innovations that are showing up as uh, most promising for making uh, particularly grain production more efficient and sustainable? Yeah, so, you know, 50 years ago or so, farmers, nitrogen, for instance, nitrogen fertilizer is very important to growing any sort of a crop, particularly corn, which is the the major crop in the United States. So 50 years ago, when nitrogen was cheap, farmers would just put on as much nitrogen as they possibly could, and it tended to leach through the soil, and it's gotten into the groundwater, and we do have a lot of nitrates in our groundwater Um, even in the aquifers. And it also has flowed through the rivers and has gone into the Gulf of Mexico. And you may have heard of the hypoxic zone that is killing off some of the wildlife in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, the EPA is now, you know, very interested in trying to manage this. Previously, this was not, you know, I don't want to demonize farmers for doing this. It's not like farmers knew that we knew the eventual impacts or what effect this would have on the Gulf of Mexico. They were just trying to grow a crop. But now that we know the effects that nitrogen leaching and soil erosion can have on the externalities and the environment in general, now there are things we can do. And the big promising new innovation that, for instance, the state of Iowa is trying to implement a voluntary program and the National Resources Conservation Service, they're also trying to implement these programs to encourage cover crops that scavenge the excess nutrients so farmers don't have to apply as many nutrients. And then as those cover crops die and... um, you know, are worked into the soil, the crops can then use those excess nutrients. And it really has worked. Um, They've, you know, they have data, they test the the water that erodes or that comes out of the tiling systems from an Iowa farm ground, for instance, and they can tell that, yes, there is less nitrogen coming off of those fields with cover crops. So that's an innovation that is not, you know, it's not cutting-edge technology. Let's say you're just growing rye or something sort of seed in the off-season when the corn or soybeans aren't being grown. This sort of thing was done, you know, back in the 1800s. I mean, this is not a real cutting-edge technology, but being able to do it precisely and understanding the right timing of doing it and having big programs, policies to make that happen, that is a new thing that we're going to see now and particularly the next five to ten years. Great. And we also hear a lot about uh, a lot of concern over the loss of topsoil and soil erosion on farms in the uh, Midwest. Uh, Do you have any um, innovations in mind that might address that issue? Yeah, cover crops again do that. And and the difference between, I would say, the water, uh, the nitrates in the water versus the soil erosion issue, the nitrates in the water, the person or the groups that that cost or that that damages are your local communities or communities downstream or the Gulf of Mexico. So it's not so much the farmer himself, right? It's going to cost him money to prevent those nitrates going downstream, but he's not always going to be able to reap the benefits of what he did the imp- or the, the changes that he made to, to limit that. Whatever changes he can make to limit his own soil erosion, that is directly 
you know, benefits him again for his next crop. If he can keep as much topsoil, as much nutrients in his own soil as he can, that will definitely benefit his crops next year. It will de benefit his crops for the next 20 years, for the next 30 years, for his sons and daughters that he, you know, that inherit his land. So the topsoil erosion is something that farmers already care about and already are very motivated to prevent. Very interesting. So we've also observed a trend in recent years about um, seeing uh, some land that was previously uh, under pasture uh, being converted to cropland. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this trend and maybe some of the factors that have played into it? Yeah, there was a very influential study and a set of maps published by the National Academy of Sciences last year in 2013 showing that conversion of grassland into cropland and, you know, the hot spots where it really happened in south central Iowa and in the Dakotas. Um, what caused it was it's very market driven, right? These are just, like I said, there's hundreds and thousands of farmers who are each individual business operators and they're just trying to maximize their own profits. They're very market driven. So if you have corn at $6 or $7 per bushel or, or at any sort of profitable price, they were now motivated to take the steps to turn any land they had into grain production or corn production rather than pastures. So previously there may have been pastures that were too rocky or too hilly that you wouldn't have grown corn on for the past 30 40 years, but now it made sense to do that. Going forward, you know, in 2014, projections are not profitable. It would it, the cost of corn production in Iowa in 2014 is going to be somewhere between $4.29 and $4.97 per bushel. The market is not offering that price, so it's no longer profitable to even be doing this. Farmers are going to do it anyway. Like I said, they're always going to maximize their production. Um, but now you have to ask, would it not have made more sense from a long-term perspective to optimize the diversification of your land holdings and perhaps you'd wish you'd still had some of that pasture that you could be running livestock on? Livestock operations are projected to be profitable in 2014. So, there are certainly, you know, uh, different ways to approach it. And from a conservation standpoint, obviously this affects wildlife. It affects also these things that we were talking about, erosion. Pastures obviously have less erosion than farmland. It changes the entire water patterns of any given county. The county where I grew up, Edmonds County, South Dakota, has lost 5% of the county has gone from being some sort of grassland or hayland into cropland in the past 10 years alone. So it has been very drastic change, um, but going forward, now that if we maintain this period of time where we have sort of ample crops or abundant crops and reasonably low or less profitable prices, I expect that that trend will be limited within the United States. But it is something that's still going on in Brazil and South America. They've still got a lot of pasture that they could continue converting into cropland. Interesting. And so we've just now uh, recently in the news see, uh, seen the uh, finally the new farm bill pass um, through Congress. How do you anticipate this new farm bill impacting uh, grain production and trading in the United States? You know, that, Aaron, that brings up a really good point about, again, why were they motivated to be growing crops more than livestock? The farm bill, what it does is it, um, it encourages abundant production of grain in the United States so that the United States populace, our voting populace, our citizens can always be confident to have an abundant food supply. That's the whole point of why we have crop insurance. There are no longer any sort of subsidies or direct payments to farmers in the new Farm Bill, but there is a crop insurance program that will limit their risk. Like I said, it's a very risky proposition, but we don't want these guys to go out of business because you don't want to run out of food. However, 
it doesn't really, there's no equivalent crop insurance program for livestock producers. They don't have the same sort of insurance that um, covers their risks of death loss or their hay loss in, in the event of a drought. So to that degree, the farm program does, you know, motivate, economically motivate producers towards grain production rather than livestock production. There were some clauses in the Farm Bill, I believe, that did put in um, adherence to conservation programs. In order to be eligible for certain crop insurance products, you have to adhere to conservation policies. And I don't believe that if you tear up native prairie anymore, they have protected our prairies in some of these uh, Farm Bill policies. So there are certainly ways that the policies in the Farm Bill affect what motivates farmers to do what with their land. Very interesting. And so continuing to look forward, um, our final question is, what do you view as the most important challenge for the American grain industry uh, to address in the next five years? Well, honestly, I mean, looking at it from the perspective of a a farmer or from someone whose clients are farmers, you know, profitability is going to be our biggest problem in the next five years. You wouldn't think it from the last couple of years. Obviously, we've had a couple of really great years. But going forward, you know, just making money, it's going to go back to the years when farmers just weren't making very much money. That has been the historical reality of farming is that it has not been a highly profitable operation or a highly profitable, you know, way to make a living. But going forward again, that's that's going to be the the challenge. So any sort of innovation that we can use to increase our own yields, um, make our inputs more efficient so we're not wasting money on unnecessary amounts of nitrogen fertilizer or pesticides or chemicals or anything that costs money or energy, fuel that we use to grow the crops, to plant them and harvest them, any sort of efficiency that we can, you know, try to milk out of this and, and keep our slim profit margins is going to be our biggest challenge. Great. Well, we will look forward to see how that works out. Um, Elaine, I want to once again thank you so much for joining us today, and um, I hope everyone out there has a great day. Thanks, Erin. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.